You know, uh, one of the things that Grant said, there were so many things in our service already that link to what I believe God wants me to share from his word. And one of them is that uh, God, um, when he calls us to follow him, he expects us to change, to follow him, to live our lives in a way that reflects his character and his nature. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, every once in a while I hear uh, reports of uh, fellow pastors who uh, are not only leaving the pastorate, but leaving the faith. And there was, I I wouldn't say friend, an acquaintance, I knew who he was. Um, And I'd heard that uh, he is no longer pastoring, no longer uh, even going to church, and no longer even following the faith. and his emphasis became, uh, as far as I can tell, that, that the, he could not understand if God loves people, how he could ever say to somebody, well, yes, you love them, but your sex with them outside of marriage is a sin. He could never get that. If they love one another, then why aren't they free to express that love? Regardless of the kind of sex they have, isn't it okay? Like, isn't that what love is all about? Or if a woman was struggling and had a very difficult time ahead of her to carry through the pregnancy, he couldn't understand somebody in pain and suffering couldn't have the freedom to eliminate that pain from their lives by having the abortion. He couldn't understand that, that if somebody was struggling with their identity and felt that they ought to be a different gender, he couldn't understand how the love of God would hold somebody back from making what would make them so happy and content and give them a new start to life. And he especially couldn't understand how a God who says he's love would ever create a place like hell, let alone send somebody there. And so his understanding of God's love from his point of view moved him away from the faith. He's like saying, I don't understand how after a husband and wife are married, why, if the husband truly loves his wife, why can't she still date and be with other men even though she's now married? Doesn't he love her if that makes her happy? Wouldn't that, isn't that love for him to accept that? That's basically what he was saying because he was redefining God's love in his own terms rather than in the terms of the word of God. And that's why Peter, in this book of 2 Peter, is saying to us, I want you to remember these core things so that you will not wander from the faith. Not to understand God from your mind, but to understand who God is from his revealed word about who he is. And here we are at the final end of this book. Chapter three, verse 14. So then, dear friends, Since you are looking forward to this, looking forward to what? He just described how God is going to come. Jesus is going to return to the earth. And part of his return is is the remaking of the entire earth through fire. It will be changed, radically renewed. Just like the earth was made new in the flood, when, when the flood hit the world and then he created a whole new world and started fresh. So at the end of time, when Jesus comes, 
that remaking of the earth starting fresh will happen. And since you are looking forward to this, since your heart is set on the return of Jesus and the demise of sin and the raising up of righteousness and a new world where there's no corruption and no hatred and no sin and violence, but you're looking forward to this where all truly love God, make every effort, since that is what your heart wants, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Here's another link to communion. Grant said, uh, you know, spotless means, the idea is like in Revelation, we, the white robes are a picture of the righteousness of the saints. So there's no spots on the road. That means the righteous acts of the saints, the obedience that we have. Peter's saying, pursue obedience to God. Since you know Jesus is coming, since you know there is going to be a radical alteration of this world where righteousness will reign, well then pursue righteousness. Be spotless. Don't allow your white robes to be stained by actions of sin. Now, I like what he says next. So he says spotless, and then he says blameless. And sometimes we read and we don't realize there's a difference between those two words. Blameless means there's nothing that you have to be held against you. So if you have failed at being spotless, then you have taken the steps you need to take in order to wash the robes. Of course, that's to come in confession and repentance to Jesus Christ whose blood washes us clean. Another theme that we went through, communion. So we're to strive to be spotless, but if you're anything like me, and a lot of you really are, you struggle at times and fail, and so you return to Jesus, and you find cleansing in him and the cross and his blood, because the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for my sin today as it was the day I received him as my savior. I still rely on him and the cross to make me presentable for God because I'm just not perfect. My heart longs to strive after him, but I got issues just like you. So I go back to the cross, which was what communion is really about, going back to the cross, back to Jesus. And he says, and be at peace with him. So rather than having a rebellious spirit toward God, I'm gonna do what I want. I don't care what God says, don't care what the Bible says, don't care. A submissive spirit, a submissive spirit, where our spirits say, God, show me, and then give me the grace to obey what you've shown me. Since this world is coming to an end, as Jesus says it is, so be, pursue spotlessness and blamelessness and peace with God. Why? Why, why is this so important? Look at verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. That's why. That you start well and in moving away from the teaching of God, from the things we need to remember, you wander from the faith. And that's what Peter's, that he told us, that's why I'm writing to you. Because false teachers are going to come in and attempt to move you away from Christ. But remember these things. Now he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So it's easy to preach this 
coming to Jesus, like Jesus coming with a harshness and a bitterness, and yeah, you're going to get it. It's easy to have that mindset, but that is not the mindset of God. Instead, the God mindset of God is Jesus, I have ordained a time when Jesus will come, but God is patiently waiting because that means salvation for those who have yet to repent and turn to him. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave them. He writes the same way in all his letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I get comfort from that, that the apostle Peter, the leader of the apostles, says, you know, sometimes Paul, he's a little hard to understand. Because when I read Paul in the New Testament and his books, he's a little hard to understand sometimes. which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. And so people sometimes take those hard to understand parts and try to turn them around and you need to be aware of the scriptures and understand them so that they can't do that to you is what he's saying. Now, if you, I, I just want to draw your eyes to bear in mind that our Lord's patience, this is the second time in seven verses that Peter refers to the patience of God. And there is an unspoken context behind this that I think perhaps we're not aware of, and so we're missing the impact of what he is saying. It's just like if I said to you, boy, Matthews and Marner, they're having a great year. They might beat the Bruins this year, right? Yeah, woo! Some faith. Jesus could not do much because there was so little faith. <laughs> now, here, see, at least some of you, many of you understood what I was talking about. I was talking about hockey, in particular the NHL, in particular the Leafs and the Bruins. You totally understood. I didn't say anything about hockey. I didn't say anything about the NHL. But you understood the unspoken context. Right? Well, not if you're from Nigeria or India or Ballantrae. You might have had trouble understanding the unspoken context. Because you're not familiar with all that stuff. And you're like, why? Whoever these two guys are, why do they want to beat up on little bears? Well, it's the same way here. There's an unspoken context around this term patience and Peter's reference to Paul. In fact... Paul, uh, where does Paul say that? Paul says that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I've got to get it here. Sorry, I didn't mark it. Just talk among yourselves while I try to find this. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So Paul says the same thing with different words. Are you showing, uh, do you show contempt that God in his kindness, his patience and his forbearance waits for you to turn to God and come to a saving faith from your sins? And so who is he talking to? Well, Paul is talking to the people. Now, okay, this is where I go real deep theologically, so you just stick with me. Look at me and stick with me. Romans 2, 
comes after Romans 1. Do I need to say that again? Like, can you, like, okay, I know it's confusing, but Romans 2 comes after Romans 1. And in Romans 2, Paul is commenting on the thoughts he has developed in Romans 1. So we ought to ask, well, what's in Romans 1? Great question. You guys are so sharp. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the people of the world who have said no to God. We will go our own way, and God has given them over to their decision. That's the famous Romans 1. It is people saying no to God, and God saying, okay, I'll give you what you desire. Now, Romans 1 is the New Testament version of Genesis 11. This is not the first time. This is not Paul got his theology, not from somehow made it up in his head. He goes back, and there is in Genesis chapter 11 the same theme. I don't know if you realize in Genesis there are three rebellions in Genesis. Three rebellions. The first one is Satan in the garden. The second one are the sons of God who take on human form and come and make the daughters of men pregnant. And Genesis 11, where the nations, the people that God has told, I want you to multiply, scatter throughout the earth, and bring my rule to it. It's what he told Adam and Eve to do. He renewed it with Noah, that exact same command. And these people are like, nah, we don't want to do that anymore. And we're told in Genesis chapter 11 that they came to the plain of Shinar and they said, hey, we like it here. And we're going to stay here. And we don't care what you said, God. We're going to stay here and we're going to build a tower. And that will be who we worship. We will make our own gods. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we hear... We hear God say, verse 7, come, let us, so let us, I don't think refers to the Father and Jesus talking. Now, (laughs) on our website, somebody called me a heretic because when I was teaching this, uh, they claimed that I was saying Jesus wasn't God. And so I'm not saying Jesus isn't God. I'm saying that this us refers to more than the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, refers to the divine counsel. We'll get there in a second. So the Lord scattered them, so he comes down, let's confuse their language so they will not understand each other, and so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city, that's why it's called Babel. And so he, God comes down, and he goes, okay, you don't want to obey. Then he gives them, confuses their languages, and guess what happens? They break up into people groups, and then they go, you know what, we can't, we're, we're too close to people we don't understand. They, and so they start moving, what's happening? They're scattering. They're doing what God originally intended for mankind to do, to scatter throughout the earth. But this story is not complete, or what happened at this story is not complete. The Bible is not a linear book where you, God starts and then just tells history right through to the end. It is more a mosaic. Think of it as a huge picture with all these colors in it, and there's different colors at different points, the same color all through it, but all different places. And the mosaic is as you understand the pieces, you start to put together what's going on. 
And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God talks about Babel again. Look at verse 7. He says, remember the days of old. Now remember, this is Moses speaking to eight, uh, the children of Abraham, Israel, when they're just starting. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. So if somebody said to that, at least I would, I'd be thinking, oh, he's talking about a long, long, long time ago. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they'll explain this to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind. Now, when did that happen? Babel. So he divided all mankind, confused their language, and apparently he gave them their inheritance. In other words, sent them to the places they were to go. And he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you're reading in NIV, it says the sons of Israel. It doesn't, actually the, the Hebrew says sons of Elohim, sons of God, but they didn't know what to do with it because they didn't understand that there was a divine council. So they just said sons of Israel, but the sons of Israel weren't even around at that time in Babel. The sons of Israel are Abraham's descendants and Abraham was chosen after Babel. So what God did is he said, fine, you don't want me as your ruler? You want different? Then I will step back and give you over to the sons of God and they will rule you. So this is Romans 1, before Romans 1. People saying no to God, I don't want that, I want this, and God saying, I'll give you what you want. By the way, that still happens today. And by the way, that is hell. Hell is where people receive exactly what they want. I don't want you, God, I want something different. And God says, then I'll give you what you want. Hell is not people, oh, please don't, don't send me there. That happens. I'm not even sure it happens once they get there. Hell is people saying, I don't want you. I want something different. I don't want you. I don't want you ruling my life. And God says, I will give you exactly what you want. That's why his justice is so incredibly complex. That in sending people to hell, he's giving them exactly what they want. And so God gives these nations what they want. You don't want me to rule you? I'll give you someone else to rule you. And he gives them the sons of God. Now, how did that go? How did the sons of God go, uh, ruling the sons of God? Well, you have to go to, uh, in this mosaic, you have to go to Psalm 82, and we'll see how it went. Now, you've heard this, me say this verse before. God presides, Elohim presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the Elohim. And so Elohim is one of those words that's used in the, New, in the Old Testament to refer to God. It really means a divine spiritual being. And it mostly is used for God, but it's not exclusively used of God. It's also used of the sons of God, who are these divine, divine meaning godly or of God character, whether God Yahweh or other type of God, non-earthly, non-physical, but spiritual and supernatural, divine. Because it wouldn't make sense that he presides in this great assembly and renders judgment among himself. It's not the Father judging Jesus here, it's 
Yahweh judging these divine beings, these Elohim. And you can tell that as you go through. How long will you defend the unjust? This is what he's saying of these Elohim, these divine beings that were given rulership over the nations. How long will you defend the unjust? So they were unjust and show partiality to the wicked. They preferred wickedness over righteousness. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the, pr- and the oppressed. They would rather oppress. They taught the nations to oppress rather than to care. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking because they're turning righteousness and justice into oppression and darkness. And I said... You are Elohim, you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals, you will fall like every other ruler. This cannot be Yahweh talking to Jesus. Rise up, O God, the judge of the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So I'm reading from the NIV, you're seeing the ESV. I did that intentionally. God is going to judge these Elohim and bring the nations all back to himself. He's going to take the nations back, those that he gave for keeping of the Elohim and they rebelled against God and they took the nations and they plundered them and they oppressed them and they drew, the Old Testament is just a series of the gods being worshiped. They took the worship of people for themselves rather than directing it toward God and God brings them under judgment. Now what's this got to do with Second Peter? <laughs> like, I think he's lost it up there. <clears throat> God has patience. That's how we started this conversation. And then we went to Paul. And Paul was commenting on what happened in Romans 1, which is a mirror image of Genesis 11. And he said, God, kindness and his patience and his forbearance that we would come to repentance. That's how God treats us. Well, what happened in Genesis 11? Well, mankind said no to God. and said, we'll choose other gods. And God said, fine, I'll give you... I'll give you what you want. He scattered them through confused tongues and gave them rulers, and those rulers oppressed them and turned them against God and used the worship for themselves, and God judges them. Now, this is what this has to do with 2 Peter. If you go over to Ephesians chapter (laughs) 4, we're getting there. Paul writes, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Different story. In Genesis and in Psalms, we learn the people scattered and rebelled against God and didn't want God. Here, we see all people being brought back together. One, not many gods, the sons of God and the Elohim who are taking worship from themselves, but one God. Not many ways to believe, but one way to believe. Not many different faiths, but one faith. 
Everything being brought back together into one. As if the words of Psalm 82, God rise up and bring back your nations, were taking place. And how does that happen? But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It's happened because of the grace of Jesus Christ to us. And that is why it says, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What has that got to do with what? One faith, one hope, one God, a father of all. Let's go back into the Old Testament. I'm getting there, I'm getting there, stay with me, stay with me. There's a point to all this. I don't know if you're gonna get it, but there is a point to all this. Psalm 68 is where Paul quotes that. Verse 15, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain. Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why gaze in envy, you rugged mountain, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell? The chariots of God are ten thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Now first, let's just talk about Bashan, because there's two mountains. What you're seeing here is mountain of God, Mount Bashan. Actually, it's mountain of Elohim. So remember, that word can be used in different ways. It can refer to God, but it can also refer to the sons of God that fell and rebelled. Mount Bashan is a figure of speech, it's a metaphor. So if I were to say to you, hell's angels, what comes into your mind? Motorcycles. Motorcycles. (laughs) I got one guy out here feeding me. Okay, thank you, Mark, I appreciate it. The rest, you know, maybe I put them to sleep. Is that what happened, Mark? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) he won't answer. Yes, crime, violence, prostitution, hatred, killing. That's what comes on. All you got to do is say hell's angels and you know, ooh, that's bad. That's bad. Well, Bashan is the hell's angels of that day. That's the word, Bashan, means to the Israelites and the psalmist what hell's angels means to us. Because Bashan was where they believed the sons of God in Genesis 6 came down to the earth in their rebellion. Bashan is where the Nephilim, the product of these sons of God, exercised their wickedness and debauchery. In fact, if you follow the, the movement of Israel out of Egypt, they come up into Bashan and they fight a king who was considered to be a Nephilim. It's here, it's in this area. This is where the Nephilim ruled in their wickedness and their hatred and their debauchery. This is where Israel, when they broke, when Israel separated into two, the northern and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom brought idols up to this area for the people of Israel to come and worship. There's a place, I've been to it, it's called the Gates of Hell. It is a, there's a cave and there's a pool and I was told to this day they don't know how deep that is. Even with modern equipment, they can't figure out how deep that pool of water goes down into the earth. And the people of this day and since have believed that's where demons come up and go down from hell onto the earth. Basically. 
By the way, Bashan, Mount Hermon, is where Jesus went up and was transfigured. And they saw him on his glory. And then standing by the gates of hell, that pool, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, I'm going to build a church. And the gates of hell, the demonic evil of this world will not overcome it. They will be in defense. The church will be powerful. It's like he walked, Jesus walks to a hell's angel's bar, kicks the door open and says, bring it. That's what's going on. And this predicts it. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands upon. His army is innumerable, innumerable, unable to be defeated. So then he says, the psalmist, when you ascend on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. And he says, the psalmist says, when God ascends, he is going to take captive the inhabitants and the residents of Bashan. He is going to take them captive and he will now rule the world. That's why in Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, when he ascended, he took captive. He took captive these rebellious sons of God and brought the nations back to himself, which is why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, all authority has been given to me. Why? Because he crushed the head of evil, of Satan and the other divine beings that were part of the divine council that rebelled. And he crushed their head, meaning he crushed their power and their authority. And now the nations which were given to them in Genesis 11 are now belonging to Jesus. The victor who at the cross destroyed, John tells us in 1 John 3, destroyed the work of the devil. Now, still, Ed, I don't get what this has to do with Second Peter. Genesis 11 happened when? We're not really sure. Thousands of years ago. Thousands. Genesis 11. Thousands of years pass, and Jesus comes in his first advent to this earth. And there at the cross, destroys those who hold the world in bondage and then allows mankind the freedom now to turn for escape and redemption and rescue. It was thousands of years that God held back the judgment due to those who abused, who murdered, who robbed, who lied, who killed, who did witchcraft, who were sexually immoral. For thousands of years, God held back what was due to us. 
thousands and thousands of years forbearing because he knew the day of Christ at the cross would come when it would be all paid for by Christ so that any who want to turn to him could have eternal life. The patience of, now you getting it? The patience of God is immense for thousands of years and as he was patient from Genesis 11 to the cross, so from the cross to his return, whenever that's going to be, God waits patiently for us that we might repent and find life. God, that's why God is so, people go, why doesn't God judge these people who do all these bad things? Because the power of the cross is able to transform a broken and sinful heart into a heart that pursues righteousness and godliness that is spotless and that is blameless and at peace with God. That's why Jesus waits. That's why God waits. That's why he holds back because he is going to bring the entire earth. In Genesis chapter one he said to Adam and Eve look go to the entire world and revelation Jesus says the entire world is now under the authority of Jesus Christ and all the world has heard the news the good news of the gospel and that day is coming but until that day comes guess what our role is Our role is to obey what we've been told to do. All authority, said Jesus, has been given to me. The nations are now mine. I have returned them back to myself. I've destroyed the evil of the sons of God who have practiced injustice and oppressiveness and rebellion and false worship, and I have crushed their power and authority. They no longer hold authority over us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to Jesus. We are in the victor side, so all they have left is this. I will lie and deceive. I will keep the church focused on the wrong things. I will keep people from believing the truth so they wander away. I will keep people unaware of what's important. I will keep them from prayer. I will keep them from the word. I will keep them from the mission that God gave them. I will deceive them. They can't control us because they don't have the authority and power to do so when we're in Christ, but they can deceive us. And in the patience while God waits for the whole world to be redeemed, the heart of God, the whole world to be redeemed, we are to focus on the word, to focus on our God, and then to move toward those who are far from God, to tell them the good news of Jesus. Because one day he's returning and he's coming back. So my brother, thank you. So we now, as we end this book, have to ask a very simple question. What is my role? What is God calling me to? It's okay. God's in control here right now. I don't know who her brother is, but God's in control. Jesus has all authority. You're safe. But he's called us to obey. So I want to encourage those of you who, those of you who have longed 
for the word of God in your life, to keep pursuing it. Coming here to listen to the word each week or online. You're allowing the word to shape you. Your own personal time. If you're spending time with God, I encourage you in that. If you're being part of our life groups or our Bible study or our Springvale Institute, it is designed to equip us to know and understand the truth so we're not led away by error, nor do we teach wrong things. Keep up knowing the word. What's your next step? What's God calling you to? To protect yourself, to protect your family. And if you're here and you have never heard this before, you have never received Jesus as your Savior, you don't know what even that means, then keep coming. Or come and ask. That you may find that through repentance, which is to admit your sin, and to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus to pay for your sin and then choose to surrender your life to God, to walk now with God. If you're willing to take that step of faith, Jesus says, then I will pay for your sins and reconcile you to God, redeem you. Paul tells us that we are redeemed from the darkness, the dark powers of this world and brought into the inheritance of the saints, the kingdom of light. And if you don't have that, you can find that here by simply receiving Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, today, I was shocked that so much comes from that one word, patience. That your love is shown toward us. Not wanting any of us to perish. But you have sacrificed yourself that we might be redeemed. Given new life and hope love for us is astounding. Now as your church, those who claim to be your followers, Lord, today I pray that you will draw us deeper into your word. I pray that as we seek you through your word, that your spirit will draw us deeper into it so we may understand and have a knowledge of God, a true knowledge, one that is reflected from your revelation, not made up by our world. And that you would motivate us to fulfill the mission that you've given us in hopes that those we love and those we know would come to repentance. Just as the Father waits, Lord Jesus, before he sends you back, that, that those we love would turn to you and would come to repentance before his return.